Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey, Alex Talcott, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you? Doing great, John. I, uh, I just emailed you a selfie so you can have a little bit of a sense of where I am right now. I hope it captures a little bit of the fall foliage that we have uh, here in New England. Hey, I see that. Okay, I see the, uh, the you know, it looks beautiful in the background there. Yeah, what's it's fall time like? It's a New England college campus. Oh, man, that's beautiful. Yeah, and you, you're, you're, you're on campus today, right? Tell us about where you're located. Yeah, I'm actually on campus um, every weekday this semester. I teach uh, Introduction to Financial Management and Business Law at the Peter T. Paul College of Business and Economics at the University of New Hampshire. And I'm also teaching Business Law and Personal Finance at Great Bay Community College on the Portsmouth campus. So um, I manage my business interests and spend really as much time on campus and in the classroom with students as possible. Uh, I love it. Yeah, that's so that's so neat. Well, that's not all that you do, though. I'm looking at your resume, and we had chatted before. So tell people a little bit more about what you're involved in, too, because you're also a um, uh, you know a financial advisor and managing partner, and also involved in some real estate. So before we dive into a little yeah. bit more about your story and background, <laughs> what else are you up to these days? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have five-year-old twins and a two-year-old baby and a dog and a cat that I'm allergic to. Not allergic to the twins or the baby. But I got an 1863 uh, farmhouse and that I eat, uh, not rather handy around. So, you know, part of my business interests are shirking chores around the house, to be perfectly honest. But uh, yeah, uh, totally. I'm the managing partner of uh, Seacoast Financial Planning in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, beautiful, you know, quintessential Seacoast uh, maritime town. We have $450 million in client assets, but about 2,600 client households. So if you do the division on that, I'm kind of low six figures, middle class clientele who we take good care of with comprehensive financial planning. Uh, we have independent CPAs and estate planners who are also available to those clients. And then with a real estate attorney friend in New Jersey, I have an out of state real estate investment company. Yeah, man. It, uh, I, I have to ask, how the heck do you manage your calendar? You're a dad of three kids. You're you're an adjunct professor. You're involved in two other a financial planning firm and a real estate firm. My mind has completely exploded. How do you keep all well, this together? Well, you know, they say like America runs on Dunkin'. Um, I'm drinking some right now. And, uh, you know, Dunkin' Donuts started out as a Boston hotel coffee business. And I never fully appreciated how caffeinated we are in the Northeast and in greater Boston until, you know, I traveled to some major cities and other parts of the country. And I remember wigging out in downtown Des Moines, Iowa once, like oh walking boy. three blocks and, and not having a coffee shop. I was like, <laughs> what is going on? What so, the heck I mean, is going on? They probably have fried yeah. chicken there. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, probably not a coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean that's part of it. You know, that's my guilty pleasure is I'm... Uh, I enjoy my coffee, but I also enjoy all my, you know, I enjoy my students. I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I always get to tell my students and clients that since I have the freedom of time, freedom of relationship, several of the freedoms that, you know, entrepreneurs work hard and smart 
towards hopefully I'm able to tell people that um, anytime you see me, I'm where I want to be. So I'm able to be fully present. So there's nowhere I'd rather be than on campus with my students and talking with new friends over the phone now. So, yeah. Oh man, that's so, that's so awesome. Well, I'm just ex- eager to talk with you. Uh, before I get too carried away on stuff that you're involved in, I, I as I do with all of my listeners, I just want to ask, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was money like for your household growing up? Yeah, I grew up, um, I was born in Queens, New York, uh, grew up Long Island, um, on the North Shore of Long Island, so in a, in a very, very nice and affluent part of the country. You know, the way that I describe it is my, my sophomore year, Social studies teacher in 1996 pulled home 140 grand at a public school. So, you know, we're talking, you know, very significant property taxes, very, very hardworking people in professional services fields in New York City, you know, living in the, in the suburb where I grew up. I had a backyard and I was on the Long Island Railroad 40 minutes to Midtown Manhattan. So it was a really amazing community where you could have that kind of uh, Main Street. The yeah. community athletics kind of vibe, but then you were also exposed to the Big Apple. So yeah. um, that was a really, really neat place to grow up. My mother is a registered nurse. She works in geriatric wound care. Yeah, so she is a yeah. She is an amazingly um, hardworking, strong, <laughs> and patient funny sure. yes. person. Oh, she's she's remarkable. And so, so that's my mother. Um, and then my dad is a, a CPA. He took a term as a CEO at one point, but found his sweet spot as a CFO in the elevator industry after being an auditor. Um, so my dad is very, very fast at mental arithmetic. And that's yeah. something that nature and nurture I was able to pick up with. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of his best lessons about money growing up were the calculations not to run. So it was sometimes just not nickeling and diming nickels and dimes and kind of understanding yeah. that sometimes you know, you need to make calculated decisions about how you're spending your time and what the big questions are, rather than, then, you know, uh, torturing yourself to come up with the answers to somebody else's questions. Oh, man, so, of wisdom. That's it was wonderful sweet. having a CPA dad. My mom was yeah. very, very hands-off with money, very deferential to dad. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. So tell us a little bit about your early career. Uh, you have a JD, so you went to law school. How did you first uh, I decide that you wanted to get into law and how did that take you? Well, I say that my mom was you know, more hands-off with money, but at the same time, her dad was an estate planning attorney with his own firm in New York. And she was always aware that uh, you know, he, he'd go into the office on weekends, on Saturdays, and, and my grandma's rule was if you're going into the office on Saturdays, you have to bring at least one of the kids with you. Oh my you, gosh. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so you'd have to like at least parent or at least expose them to what the work was all about and cool. you know, kind of t- t- take some time aside to do some real world uh, teaching. So my grandfather did that and I didn't get to know him very well. It's, it's one of the kind of tragedies of my life that I didn't get to know my mother's father. He died of uh, brain cancer in the mid 1980s, but he was, he was an attorney that had his own small firm, but uh, he won a case before the Supreme Court. You know, he'd go uh, like uh, the, the the Cardinals spoke at his uh, memorial service. I was in D.C. a few years ago, and I visited one of his law clerks who went on to become a congressman from upstate New York. So he was a very prominent small firm attorney who was sometimes paid in kind by his clients, sometimes paid in jewelry and things like that. So <laughs> I have these like lofty and romantic memories that are not my own of my, yeah. of my grandfather. Yeah. Um, so, but I remember I got his, uh, his 
his trial suitcase, um, this real beat up leather suitcase. And I would bring that to uh, elementary school mock trial when I was a kid. And so I had this idea of being a lawyer that was yes, got it. kind of neat and kind of informed in- indirectly about my own grandfather. But you know, I went to Dartmouth College, studied liberal arts, majored in religion, was always interested in ethics, hmm. uh, went straight to law school. And if I didn't go straight to law school, it would have been divinity school or working on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Okay, so then you, you made it through law school, but at some point then you also got involved in like financial services. So why why not pursue a career in law like, um, you know, maybe your grandfather did or a typical like corporate attorney? Like how did you pivot to incorporate some financial services? You know, I think that my grandfather actually did take some cases on the basis of um, who presented themselves and who is paying. So I think part of him getting paid in kind by jeweler was not because he had an expert expertise in that field, but it's like, you know, that that's where the, the clients were. And I think one of the untold stories about uh, law school is that a lot of the work coming out of law school is like in, in insurance defense. So I represented life insurance companies and broker dealers and disability insurance cases coming out of law school. I did that for a few years Got it. in Chicago. And I learned there the relationship between insurance and financial services, you know, certain projects and certain professionals who are securities as well as insurance licensed. And that was the way that I found my way into financial services and becoming a proactive financial planner because I spent a few years in financial services litigation, finding out the ways that relationships went south, what kind of miscommunication or mistakes were made such that investors sometimes found themselves disappointed. Sure. So, sure. Um, you know, yeah, I was just going to ask them, that, makes me, th- that yeah. makes me think like you probably learned, you saw firsthand the stories that maybe a lot of consumers might hear, which is sort of the bad stories, the negative ones. Yeah, what, where not, to do. Yeah, what not to do. So what stands out from your experience with that? And I wonder like how, how that must inform you now being on the other side, like dealing directly yeah. with consumers and having a firm. I don't know what stands out from the stories. Yeah, I would say, I would say two things, you know, fortunately as a defense attorney, I don't have to apologize for, you know, representing any big, bad companies, our, our clients were, were wonderful, yeah. very, very reputable companies. But the things that, that, that I observed, you know, fall into two categories. One, there were some financial professionals in some places probably selling products that they didn't fully understand. Mm. And I'm not talking about some of those collateralized debt obligations of the financial crisis per se. But I'm saying, you know, if you find yourself in the middle part of the country selling annuities, that's a somewhat complicated product in some ways. You know, uh, you know, it takes a score in the 70s to get your Series 7. And so a lot of times, even if you're dealing with a licensed professional, that's a licensed C-minus professional. And licensed C-minus you know, professional, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what do I put I mean, it? If we're being serious about what it really takes to score on an AT exam or to become licensed, you know, we're not insisting on A's in most fields. Fields. Um, That's a great point. I'm fortunate that my mother is not a B plus nurse because I mean, nobody wants to be uh, cared for by one. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Uh, but, <laughs> That's so funny. Right. You know, right? We all want to be operated on and cared for by people who are real, really excellent in their in their fields. And there are some people in financial services who are not excellent. Good point. And um, you know, sometimes that that led to some challenges. And and again, it was not overt greed that I observed, but subtle incompetence. Oh, that sounds terrible. But, but no, honestly, some of this stuff is hard. Running is hard. Math is hard. Communicating it is difficult. Yeah. So that was kind of one bucket. The other bucket would be uh, just a kind of turnover that we see in most okay. organizations. So mm, by the time point. maybe a few years down the road, the markets finally turn. Yes. Somebody finally notices it. 
They have yes. a fuzzy memory of what they may or may not have approved. By the time you track down uh, the people who are the licensed professionals or the support staff, I mean, they may, they may have gone on to two or three different employers by that time. Wow, and that's great. Again, point. not because they're yeah, not because they're ducking the law, but because we've gotten to a point where we we just see that kind of changeover. You're you're no longer considered flaky if you don't stick it out with the place for two or three or five years anymore. Great point. So sometimes getting to the bottom of what went down was difficult. So anything that you can do to preempt uh, getting to the point of litigation, obviously, is extremely desirable. And what should be a positive thing? Yeah. You know, financial planning and this stuff should be should be. When I teach business law, like I refuse to start with white collar crime or corporate malfeasance as the first lessons because I don't I don't like to taint what law and finance is about. It's mostly helping to facilitate communication and trust and moving forward and building wonderful things. Yeah, that's so cool. So you and you know, it's I find that um, what's what's the saying? You the teachers learn the most, uh, sort of thing. So you get to uh, you know learn a lot by being an adjunct professor, both in sort of finance and in law. So I guess for the most of my listeners, they're probably not involved in being an adjunct professor. So first of all, what does that even involve? What does it entail? How much time or work does that spend on you? And then I'm curious to talk a little bit about your experience with dealing with 18 to 22 year olds in the, you know, in the modern era. So I, how did you yeah. first get involved in that? What does it even look like to be an adjunct professor? It's a topic I really enjoy discussing, and I'm actually going to be presenting on it in Boston at the American Bar Association business law sections meeting coming up in the spring because I'm really interested in more people finding their way into the, into the classroom. Um, I have a number of friends from law school um, and in other fields who say, Oh, I'd love to be an adjunct someday. You know, you know, I might do that when I retire. And the Mm. first thing I tell them is be careful talking to a department chair, making it sound like this is something that you're doing in in retirement and not taking super seriously and kind of doing, you know, because you're, you're God's gift to, you know, lean back and, and, and spout some good, wisdom, you know? Good way. There's uh, a probably a different way to market that. That's funny that you say Right, that. exactly. You got to show that you're hungry to be really, really good at it, yeah. uh, that you're going to bring a lot of preparation and thoughtful organization to it. But also be careful, too careful about waiting too long down the road because you might be competing with people like myself, you know, who have been teaching since you're like 28, 29, like kind of decades of experience that you don't have. So you might not get the class assignments that you think that you are entitled to so at that funny. point. Yeah, <laughs> okay, um, right. But yeah, I was always a teaching assistant, even during law school and political science, and I taught economics and law and finance and, and a variety of different fields. I, I go to political science academic conferences. I'm really interested in interdisciplinary studies, and um, my courses have themes that uh, find the marriage, the similarities and differences between personal finance, corporate finance, and government finance, which yes. rules or institutions are applicable or inapplicable Great across point. those three legs of the stool totally. of the um the money management of people and institutions. But yeah, so for me, it's just a very natural thing. It was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when that I formally inherited front of classroom. When I was practicing, I was always uh, volunteering through the bar association, the high school level, judging mock trials and and doing things like that. Um, I'll never leave school. Um, yeah. I have a totally ignorant question again, because personally, I don't have any experience with this. So, you know, when somebody holds themselves out there to want to be an adjunct professor, how much of the material is prepackaged from like, uh, a textbook somewhere mm-hmm. versus how much is created by you uh, as the professor? Yeah, that's a great question. It varies a lot school to school. It varies department to department. I've experienced it all. I almost always, even if there is a uh, seminal textbook or a casebook 
that the university wants to use um, or for accreditation purposes, you know, seems to be one that they're super comfortable with or, or strongly encourage. I think it's really important for instructors to use their prerogative about kind of reordering things, not just being stubborn and uh, overly individualistic in how they do things. But for example, with the Fed and interest rates being of, of interest, you know, I've had chapter six of fundamentals of financial management on uh, the Fed and interest rates has been something that I've shuffled up. I'm like, I don't want to wait until chapter six to get to interest rates. Like, Great point. We, we have a president and a Fed chairman who are openly, you know, tussling in the news. So exactly. like, if, that, if that's what's going on and what people are hearing about, you know, sometimes even beyond the business section of newspapers, I want to scooch that up because I really want my students to feel and to, in fact, be informed on the issues of the day and have something to say about it. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious to hear what are some of the areas that you find yourself spending more time on versus not in your classes? Are there areas where students either get particularly excited or particularly hung up on any topics within finance or management? Yeah, I let my students know that upwards of 50% of the course um, content is going to be current events from the headlines. So we're going to put ourselves and I'll be putting myself on the spot about issues of the day before they're resolved. So we're going to be coming up with the questions, not just the answers. So um, I let people know from the forefront that we're going to be doing that. That's a bit of self-hazing that I do. So as somebody who's been teaching for upwards of a decade, uh, my my curriculum is absolutely um, as far from canned as could be. Um, (laughs) And and so the students who are on board with that really get a lot out of it. And I often get feedback from students that, you know, they were able to go off in an internship or job interview for 20 minutes on something that's really, you know, very cutting edge and current. And they are, are seen as a, a solution, as a uh, an active participant who will get to do some substantial work at those um, at those companies in short order. So they love that. And then anytime I do a lesson related to time value of money, compound interest, yes. you know, kind of showing people get rich quick is almost always a scheme too good to be true. But get rich slow. It's just not hard. It's, it's, it really shouldn't be. And so I, I love going through lessons with people where uh, we build mock businesses and work on financial decisions I'm on the corporate level or on the personal level to show just taking advantage of the tax code and arithmetic um, yes. helps us all live happily ever after. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah, there's something about actually, uh, you know, it's one thing to say compound interest, and it's another thing to actually see it and like see a chart of it. And and while it it might be just like a simple concept, it's still kind of need to see it on paper to believe it. But that even more so, like some, it sometimes just takes a little bit of um, accountability for somebody to like actually implement that and make it happen. But you know, as long as you're exposed to that early early in your life, but you know, like getting rich slowly yeah. is actually a great thing to do. It's really easy. Even, even people who do get it still need to be professionally pushed. You know, they yeah. need good financial coaches oftentimes, but I, I like illustrating a lot of the lessons of time value of money and compound interest, not with a fancy financial calculator, which requires some outlay of money. I, I like using money chips, which is like free online. That's my favorite online compound interest calculator. Just plug in the numbers. It's always there. It's always online. You can pull it up, you can play around with it. You can switch down how far out you want to let that thing um, compound untouched. You can get really bullish or really bearish on the you know percent return. You can or can't you know uh, go beyond that principle and plug in an additional you know modest additional annual outlay. You just play around with all the numbers and just show um, you know what makes a big difference, what makes a small difference, and the, the bottom line is you're going good to great if you're just dabbling in questions of that and hopefully having somebody help you take action on it. 
Yeah, definitely. I think um, I, I had never touched a financial calculator until after I had graduated college. And that was never just brought to my attention either by parents or by school. And so for the first time that I actually had a coworker starting to show this to me, I just, I can still remember like understanding how to do the calculation myself and spending a few hours like playing with it and seeing what the outcomes are like. That was a fun kind of personal experience to that. Now it's fun on my side, just being in this world to, to show that to clients or prospects. So that's cool. Tell, tell me a yeah. little bit about like what what's what it's what's it been like to deal with clients, maybe people who are in the pre-retirement phase or retirement phase, because these you know that's a different method of communicating uh, to them than it is to. Mm-hmm students. And so like, I don't know, I'm just curious to any stories that come up. We, we talked one more, one time uh, about, uh, you know, how to say no to clients or how to make clients slide, slow down a little bit. So what's your experience been yeah. like in the, on the personal finance within your um, Seacoast business? Yeah, I, I might have a little bit less of a sense of like um, ages or generational differences. And actually, even among my, my student bodies, um, I've had students as young as 16 or 17 taking college classes as, you know, certain high schools through certain programs are, are allowed and, and facilitated. Um, I've had students in their eighties uh, pursuing undergraduate degrees as well. I see. So, so yes, yeah, so I would say that the, the, uh, the paradigm of the 18 to 22 year old student, even though I am at a, a tree and, and brick campus right now, you know, governor Mitch Daniels, who's now the president of Purdue really says it the best is, you know, moving out of your hometown to live in a building for four years, that's the weird thing. Like everyone thinks that that's the normal traditional thing, but if you just look <laughs> at the statistics, um, you know, what's quite traditional is, uh, I, I don't know, it, you know, the percentage of people who do what President Daniels describes, I mean, that's not, that's not 25% of Americans. So yeah, my students vary in, in, um, in age and background. And even the students who get here who are in that 18 to 22 year age range. Um, I was talking with one student who works uh, 30 hours a week at a local supermarket. And I have other students who have, you know, zero outside of class obligations and, you know, maybe they're involved in, you know, the Greek system and, right. um, you know, it, it, they have a pretty light load and a pretty, uh, you know, <laughs> fun laid back college experience, which, uh, which is great. It's something that I want to provide for my children. I want yeah. them to work uh, because they want to, not because they have to. I want them to luxuriate in sitting under a tree and reading a book sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, so people, people, uh, whether they're students or whether they're clients, they come in with all different backgrounds, all different levels of competence and confidence. Mm. Um, and sometimes the people who most confidently ask for something and think that they're being really responsible. I think the best thing that we can do as financial planners is to not take the quick sale. And just because they might be eager to open the 529 college savings plan for their, for their children, but they're rushing to do that and they don't like have a Roth IRA if they qualify for one or something like that, you know, we need to slow down that conversation. So as a team, our typical getting to know you prospect client intake type meetings are generally two hours, 15 minutes to two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, those are complimentary sessions where we find we need to ask quite a bunch of questions and shut up and do quite a bit of listening to then be able to deliver some recommendations about, you know, what their first next steps uh, ought to be. And sometimes that's dispelling the notion of a few things that they thought that yes. they wanted to do and to, you know, very directly ex- explain them or, or talk them out of doing something. 
Yeah, I find that there's like that. that's a that's a point of friction with sometimes with for for folks that maybe just haven't had the opportunity yet to work with uh, financial planners, especially folks that really take this seriously and are wanted to uh, you know be fiduciaries for their clients because there there might on occasion there's this sense of um, of urgency for folks that walk in the door. There's a pain point they want something resolved or they just want you know maybe a quick fix. Like I, I read about the five twenty nine, I want to do that, but then right. it sounds like folks in your firm and, and ours certainly too, sometimes it's a matter of, of telling them that we need to like slow down and, and walk before we can run. And that can be a disorienting conversation initially Absolutely. to reorient people to understand like actually knowing your background and who you are and your strengths and weaknesses better informs the decision on whether or not to do the Roth versus the 529. I mean, and the word that you use fiduciary is a key one. Sometimes clients will come in and they won't even come with a with the sense that they need a product, but they have a sense in terms of their um, professional vetting, uh, they need to ask, are you a fiduciary? How do you get paid? And sometimes they ask those questions and they're like proud of themselves for asking it. Somebody gave them the notion, you know, be it a commercial or a family member, that that's a really important thing that you should be asking um, a trusted financial professional. But they'll ask the question and their brain will turn off because they're not in the position to even like, like understand it. So, you know, am I getting a yes and can I even follow yeah, check um, the box. You know, what, what what you're saying, but I mean, in some ways, your relationship with your uh, financial professional is similar to you know our recollections of our favorite teachers. You know, perhaps we can't point to too much of the subject matter or too many aphorisms that they shared, but we know the way that they made us feel. Mm, um, I saw a study once that uh, one of the most significant factors in being um, a doctor who's not sued. Uh, the highest correlation is like how much you smile in your meetings. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you need to be an Oshawks grinning, you know, teacher or financial professional to keep your consumers at bay. But the way that we make people feel, the way that we, you know, can set them at ease with information in a good bedside manner, I don't know if they're equally important. I have a, a lot of integrity and, in, you know, uh, what we say being absolutely correct. But I want people to be absolutely confident that we are correct. So yeah. when we, do give them some tough love when we do need to know not what they want to hear that we, that they know that, you know, we're there for them. We know we're not selling them everything under the sun. So when we very firmly are trying to get a hold of them on the phone or something, it's for good reason. We're really, really um, respectful of the value of their time. Yeah. That is so cool. I love hearing about that. Well, hey, I for many of my listeners, they're working in a corporate environment. They're working on uh, building their income or building their net worth or trying to just be efficient with their time. So tell us a little bit more about just how you've learned to prioritize uh, your time and your life and what's important to you versus not. Because I find that for some folks, that that's a sticking point. Like That's a place for, for struggle. But but you express your, your career in such a different way. So I'm just curious if you can share with any listeners how you your frame of reference is and how you can maybe help them with that. Yeah, I mean um, that is a that is a journey of uh, self study and what makes us productive and happy and what have you. And, and my wife is still. I met her when I was 18 years old. We've been together for over half of our lives at this point, and she's still trying to figure that out with me. Like she always asks me, like she doesn't understand the things that I can multitask and do. Like she doesn't understand the, the, the activities that I can do and sort of have the game on in the background versus the ones that I insist on absolute silence. So that's funny. <laughs> so there are times that she'll be like, man, you binged your way through that TV series rather fast. I'll be like, well, honey, I was only half interested in it. I was able to do kind of like clerical things that didn't require my undivided attention. So like there's certain, I'm much more into college sports than I am pro sports. 
So, like, I can have certain pro sports on in the background, and my ears will perk up if, like, a player from Notre Dame is mentioned, and then I'll look up, and I'll enjoy 90 seconds of paying attention to, like, a fighting Irish guy. Um, and then I'll go back to whatever I'm doing, and I can kind of, like, tune out other stuff. Yeah. But then I have other things where I have a, a favorite seat in the third floor of the Diamond Library on the campus of UNH, which is my favorite, quietest, most isolated part of campus that I can find, you know, for other things that require attention. I have a certain podcasts that I can listen to while I'm doing a march on the treadmill and other ones uh, th- that I need to be soaking in a tub to listen to. Uh, it's I-, I know myself really well and it's, it's hard to sometimes put into words. I think a lot okay, of us have things fair. that we just like know about ourselves. Yes. Where it's like, do you like salty food? Uh, yes, this kind, but not this kind. Like, you know, <laughs> great point. Yeah. Does sound like contradictions? Yes. It, it's like those kinds of contradictions that we really, I mean, if you have a good sense of humor about it, those are the most fun things to like poke fun with, you know, with a spouse or with a mother-in-law or something. Yeah, I like that. But I'm curious then too, like, what are the things that, because um, you're working towards something or my perception is that you're working with somewhat of a vision towards something. So I'm curious in the next, you know, let's let's, let's push it way far out. So like in 10 years, what, how are you going to define success for yourself or what are some of the things that you would hope to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, to take it back, actually, to my undergraduate liberal arts studies, in, in, in religion, you study sacred spaces. Okay. Um, not So I have, a, I have a real estate practice, and some people in real estate say dirt is dirt. And that's true. There's some things that are true, whether you're doing residential or commercial, but you know that, that is an oversimplification. In religious studies, we do not say that dirt is dirt. There, there's concentricity, there are sacred spaces, and um, I've always been somebody who... Uh, for example, when I go to my undergraduate alma mater, Dartmouth, the first thing I do when I go on campus is to go to the second floor of Thornton Hall, go up the staircase, make a left, first classroom, is the class where I had a couple of my wisest professors, and I always take a picture, I always soak up the vibes of that room, awesome. and I just remember kind of times in my own education where I really valued relationships with teachers and classmates and felt like, man, there's truth and purpose to the universe and I have goosebumps just like thinking about that right now. Yeah, so that's a very special thing for me. That's at, so cool. at some point in my in my business and my personal finances, I would like to find ways to, not, if not endow a whole building or a renovation of a whole building on a campus, maybe at least a classroom on an Ivy campus. Yeah. Or something. You know, maybe I can Ooh. have the scratch to do that. So I have certain generosity that I want to put back into certain places. Um, I've always enjoyed witnessing history. Like I was in Grand Park, Chicago on election night when. President Obama won, and I've gone to other inaugurations and, and things like that. I like to witness history wherever possible. Cool. Um, so anything that I can continue to do to witness and shape history by way of democracy is, is something that I also want to have the yeah. freedom of time to be able to do. Yeah, dude, so cool. Alex, man, in, inspiration to talking to you, and uh, this is really fun, and I appreciate you sharing with my listeners some of your background and stuff. So I guess before we wrap up, is there anything else that you feel like you'd hope to be able to impart on many of the listeners today? Well, can I just ask you one question as a guy over on, on the left coast in California? Right. I, gotta ask, I just got to ask you a question about kind of coastal money in America. So in my real estate business, it's California and Northeast money that's chasing a lot of the passive income upside on single family homes and apartments, mm. you know, predominantly in the Southeast of the United States. Mm. And the, the last Southern Californian I was on the phone with was representing um, a fund that my group decided to not move forward with because they had a million dollar investment minimum 
for a fund that was only projecting 7% annual returns. And so, and so to me, that suggests my goodness, people with like that much money to go after kind of that weak, a a market hedge or or a growth approach suggests that there is just next level money in a place like California at Dartmouth college, for example, the number one feeder state to the smallest Ivy league college in, in Hanover, New Hampshire is California. Yeah, because you have that many people and that much money out there. Right. Just talk a little bit about what it's like working with people who have maybe next level expenses in terms of the cost of housing, but I mean, you know, your incomes and your wealth out there is just yes, they're they're unrelatable. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really it's and sometimes it's really disorienting, and it's important I think both for me in my personal my my practice, um, but also for the clients that I talk to to gain perspective on where we stand, just from like a an income um, and just all of the luxuries that we afford. So I think that's probably the first thing is just to for people to like bring that to our consciousness. The other thing I think we've just been folks on the left coast or California specifically have been incredibly fortunate. This is uh, my father-in-law has a phrase, uh, which is the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the lottery of birth is essentially what it is. And it's just, mm. it's just that it's just that there's no necessarily smarter or better. Sometimes, um, you know, humans have my, my feeling is that humans have been human nature for all of history. And, uh, and so we're, you know, there's no necessarily better or differences. It's just that the, real estate market specifically, speaking of that, because I'm in Orange County, which is an absolute hub of real estate activity. There have been so much, uh, you know, national real estate that happens from these sort of like 12 square miles here. And just the fact that our our tax code and our legal code allow for leverage on real estate and tax benefits that are different from any other type of asset building. You can maybe do that with a small business and leverage your small business. You definitely cannot do that with stocks and bonds. Um, So the uniqueness of being able to be investing in real estate has produced in this area just an insane amount of wealth. So Yeah, when people say it takes money to make money, like sometimes it takes money to be allowed to make money. Yeah. Like that's one way of like thinking about certain accredited investor investments in like apartment syndicates, for example. Right. So, you know, that, that is a, that is an interesting, interesting thing. And I think you really did say humans have been humans for human history. I think that was, that was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I, I this is my per, that's just my strong personal belief. I, I'm a Christian, and yeah. so you know we we I like reading the Bible, and the Old Testament is probably the easiest way for me to point back. And my you know I'm not a professor, and I don't study this, and so I'm I'm coming at this from a layman's. No, yes, you are, because you just, actually just summarize Saint Thomas Aquinas, because I think it's in Summa Theologica, or where he says you know kind of like why do we have you know laws? You know what is what's up with like Catholic saints? talking about like laws and and criminal laws, isn't that kind of like negative? Doesn't that almost presume that God's grace will not wash over the land that we don't, you know, we will not build that city of God, that kingdom. Hmm. And he's like, well, well, I mean, yeah, laws are for for people, not for angels. So there's something about being people, about being humans. There's something that is, you know, there's there's some original sin to our nature. So yeah, that's part of who we are. And that transcends time. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the, another another thing that we got going on though is like, you know, there are fixed costs. So while, you know, your while the incomes, while some of the wealth, while some of the, you know, the the upper echelon of, of Orange County is what it is, what we find for, you know, our middle class clientele is, you know, they experience fixed costs. 
yes, you know, yes. whether you are a, a brain surgeon or a, a lawyer or a school teacher, if you want to take a flight from California to Florida or New York to Chicago, you know, that's going to cost the same for, for just about everybody. That's so there, there are a lot yes. of fixed costs. And then yes. somebody myself who dabbled as a uh, full-time teacher uh, for a period of time before I ventured back into the private sector with, with part of my time, um, I felt some of those fixed costs of the kind of working class uh, to true middle class. And uh, it was tough. It was tough. Yeah. I, so this is a topic my brother and I talk a lot about. He's uh, he's ironically also in commercial real estate, um, but he and I have chatted about uh, seeing nice cars in certain cities versus others. And one of the things we talked about is fi- fixed costs are really experienced without a ratio against them. So like, you know, th- it's $40,000 for a truck, whether you live in Des Moines, Iowa or Orange County, California. And so that same 40000 and means something totally different on a ratio compared to somebody's income and net worth. And so I think, uh, you know, I just, I think the point that expenses um, are expressed, you know, for some linear and for other exponential, that that, that really can impact people's ability to uh, expand their net worth uh, when, they're, when they're wanting to consume the same expenses as other people. Well, I'll, I'll close with a Catholic confession. Okay, so so my um my deadly sin of of envy uh, did did emerge in in the car space when I was teaching at another college, and you know I, I saw students with all these nice cars, and I finally bought my my first nice car last year. I bought like you know, albeit a used Cadillac, but a Cadillac sedan. I'm an old man, whatever. But I finally <laughs> you're an old man, is right. Yeah, enough enough international students with uh, luxury cars. I was like, Dad, nab it. I yes. can't be. <laughs> They won't take me seriously as a business teacher unless I get a successful financial professional looking car. So I finally bit the bullet last year and finally treated myself to a, to a nice car. Yeah. Yeah. Though that's, um, I, that was probably a wake up moment for me is learning that, um, you know, my kind of the, the Dave Ramsey isms of like, you know, your, your, your rent should be X percentage of your income and your car payment should be X percentage of your income and things like that. And I, when I was really early in my career, I wanted a brand new grand Jeep Cherokee and, and I only was able to make that commitment. And then I had to actually break my lease because it was too expensive based on my income. So talk about a personal finance wake up call for myself. So I, I haven't, yeah, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have to live the extreme wake up calls. Like Mr. Ramsey, for example, like, you know, he went through like a personal bankruptcy. Like some people, you know, hit the rock bottom before they have their come to Jesus moments <laughs> yeah. finance or with like anything else in their life. There's something to be said to, to take a kind of slow but steady, get rich slow, work with a financial professional approach to things. You don't have to live your yeah. life with as much of a hero narrative or as much of an art. You know? yes. Slow but yeah. steady still wins, thanks to, as we said, compound interest and number of tools that we have at our disposal. Coaching and, and math can take you really, really far. Yeah. Hey, man. Well, this is super fun talking. I know we've sort of just gone around and explored different topics. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate your time, Alex, and being able to share with listeners. If people are interested in getting in contact with you, what do you feel is the easiest way for people to reach out to any content or material produced yeah. in contact with yeah, you? Yeah, I'd be happy to share kind of three different uh, emails. If you're interested in kind of the academic approach to some of that, government corporate personal finance in the classroom type stuff, alex.talcott at unh.edu. If you're interested in the Seacoast financial planning practice, uh, we are a franchise of Ameripride. That's alex.talcott 
alex.t as in tom, A-L-C-O-T-T at ampf.com. You could also go to alexcalcott.com and that redirects to the Seacoast Financial Planning Team page. And um, to learn a little bit about what we're doing in the real estate space, uh, we're lexdanre at gmail.com. That's lexdan, L-E-X-D-A-N-R-E, real estate, lexdanre at gmail.com. Happy to uh, talk with anybody on any level. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time today and wish you all the best, Alex. Hope you have a great afternoon. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.